You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. We are very happy today to be with Dr. Dean St. Mart. I hope I've said that correctly. Um, Dean is <clears throat> a very consistently successful competitive bodybuilder. Um, he's a chemical engineer and he's got a, an interest in drug design, pharmacology, functional medicine, and uh, basically is just the, the full package and someone that I've been very excited to chat to, mainly because I'm just, just to nerd out with uh, myself. But, um, <laughs> but there's, some, there's some really good topics we wanted to dive into. He has a, from what I've seen, he's got such a potent bullshit radar um, that just detects when um, there's a false claim or there is some kind of um, misaligned incentive within the fitness and the supplement industry. And I think we'd all agree that um, there's quite a few of those in there the are. industry. So, Dean, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me on, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. I liked your shark impression. That, that's, that's the... That's the... Yeah, that's yeah, the bullshit yeah, yeah. All right. So bullshit. I will have to incorporate that now in future. <laughs> my bullshit radar alert. <laughs> So Yusuf, what am I going to say? So Yusuf always does this with podcasts, so he just shows me some notes, and I'm like, <laughs> oh god, it just says Johnny intro, but the intro's just been done. Well, I, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Dean, could you, could you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and your own words? Okay, so I live in Ireland, in County Tyrone, with my wife Morgan. I, as you said, I'm a chemical engineer for Intel, so I work in... Um, triage plasma physics. Bloody hell! Tri- which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, interesting in itself. Um, I have a PhD in organic chemistry and fluorescent spectroscopy. And then prior to that, I've done a double honors bachelor of science in chemistry with pharmaceutical chemistry in the National University of Ireland, Minute, where I came top of the university. So that was what, where we covered where my interests, where my interests developed in like drug design, toxicology, pharmacology, all those and um, modules we covered during my degree. So and basically, all, all throughout that period, I was either prior to two thousand and eight, I was a kickboxer, so I was big into fitness and training in the gym. And then I actually had an accident kickboxing where I smashed the bones in my right ankle. So that was sort of where I started to, during the rehab, go to the gym a lot more and get into more bodybuilding sort of training. And then after the World Championships in 2010, I, I decided to pack in kickboxing and move more into bodybuilding. When you smashed the bones of your ankle, did you smash them on a person? No. <laughs> uh, that, that was a horrible... Actually, when that happened, uh, we were practicing jump spinning kicks. Um, I landed funny in that my... People are watching the video. My ankle literally went like that, out away from me. Whoa. And I just thought I just thought it was like a, a simple sprain, basically. Like, I landed awkwardly. I got up and sort of, you know, shook it off, but I was limping a little bit. And after like three months of physio, it wasn't getting better. And he's like, um, you need to go see an orthopedic surgeon, I think. Wow. So but it wasn't an immediate like, oh my God, I broke my ankle. It was a slow realisation. 
Yeah, and I mean, this was one lesson that I learned about medicine also, in that when I went to the orthopedic surgeon with my ankle, I said to him, no, I, I think it needs surgery. You need to go in with a scope to look at it. And he said to me, oh, no, no, we'll do an MRI first to investigate what's going on, because the x-ray prior to that showed nothing really out of the ordinary, but I knew something wasn't right in my right ankle. So he said, okay, we'll do the MRI and then we'll book you in for the scope surgery the following week. And um, after the surgery at the review, he, he took out the MRI and he took out the pictures of my ankle and he said, you know what, you're 100% right to tell me to go into your ankle. And he showed me the MRI and there was absolutely nothing wrong in the MRI apart from a little hairline fracture up my tibia. But then he showed me the pictures of inside my ankle and it was just carnage. There was bits of cartilage floating everywhere. There was the two bones the, at the ankle joint that clashed off one another and chipped pieces of bone off. He said, like, it was just carnage. So it that, goes to show when you have a gut feeling that you just go with it. <laughs> that's grim. Well, I suppose you, you must have known about from the pain as well that, or like the sort of general crunching around you, like something's not right. Yeah, and... I, had, I had really... <laughs> When I was trying to walk, it felt like the, the two bones wouldn't move. They were sort of locked against one another. Mm. And so that was like after that surgery, it was three months of physio to get back to, to a functional ankle. And basically, I had to learn how to walk again. Wow. But what was funny was that was 2000, um, end of 2008. And then the surgery was 2009. And after the surgery, the surgeon actually said to me, like, that's it, you'll never play football, you'll never run, you'll never do kickboxing with what's gone wrong. I was sort of like, I'll sort of prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then 2010, I went and I'd I done the World Championships and won that. And then after that, I, I, I knew I wouldn't have much longevity left with the ankle if I wanted to preserve it. So that sort of forced me out of kickboxing into bodybuilding. So you won the world championships after breaking your ankle? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and you thought, you know what, I better call it a day. Yeah, now. That, that's enough now. Yeah, I, <laughs> right. I, I, I left on a high note, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's quite an important thing to, like, it's very prudent of you to say, actually, I need some longevity, I need to preserve my ankle for the rest of my life. And, mm. you know, I think Johnny and I have had the same realisation <laughs> to some extent with, with powerlifting, where, so, so I, I've uh, prolapsed the disc, uh, my L5-S1 is just in tatters and uh i just realized that if yeah may, maybe you can squeeze out another six months or another year of of deadlifting on it but then you've still got to put your socks on in 40 years time and so yeah by completely eliminating that possibility it doesn't exactly and so you know i and it, it took me longer than it should have to realize that hang on i've lost sensation across the back of my leg i can't um plant to flex my foot maybe i should stop compressing the disc more and more but i guess when you when you're young especially in your kind of early 20s you just think that you're invincible and that you should just keep yeah. training on it and it'll be fine do you know, I think that's yeah. how most I mean, lifting injuries happen or yeah. get as severe as, as some people you know people who end up needing surgery just no pain they probably no had a warning sign six months ago and then but it's impossibly difficult to make the call yourself yeah, I mean, I, I've seen powerlifters and there's a couple of Irish ones who are chronically injured and chronically getting surgeries. And it just comes to a point where you think, what what is the benefit or the gain from it? Because as you said, what I'm more so thinking is like when I'm 60 or 70, being able to 
walk properly, I'll still have that plantar flexion of my foot. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's it's fun kickboxing and you know intensity training, but later on and all that sort of said and done, you're still sort of looking at what's happening further down the line. Well, and I guess that sort of that that sort of applies to them. My main message that I often get across on IG about longevity and bodybuilders taking care of their health now in their twenties and thirties, thinking more so of the end game when they're finished with training. The, the the problem is that, um, especially in characters like yourself, so you've listed your accolades, you, you've done a lot of stuff at a very high level, you've got a PhD, you work in a very competitive field, all of these things are common traits, I suppose, of being either high achievers or type A personality, or just, at least in powerlifting, the kind of um, further along the autism spectrum of just dr- dialing down into a spreadsheet and just trying to aim for higher and higher percentages, <clears throat> that as a result there becomes this blinkered view towards training and to tell someone, oh, you need to prolong this immediate reward so that you can function in the future isn't a very sexy prospect. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine it's a very hard sell, especially with bodybuilders because they're probably further along that spectrum as well because there's so much more that's required in terms of a 24-hour input to be a little bit aware of their own mortality and their prospect for injury. Yeah, no, 100%. And I mean, the other thing with bodybuilding is internal health you can't see. So if you've got a physical injury externally, it's going to manifest, say, in pain or restricted movement. So you're going to be aware of that. But if you have high blood pressure, you're not looking at the impact that's having on your kidneys. Or you're not having an impact on what's happening potentially on the blood flow to your brain or to your heart. And it's sort of then, like, if I can't see it or feel it, then it doesn't exist. And that's sort of why we need to basically make people then aware of, like, certain choices that you may make may manifest then into these side effects and actually keeping an eye on these hidden side effects. And I guess that's more so then where I've been applying more so the, the background of functional medicine towards bodybuilding and that when bodybuilders manifest, say, for example... Um, symptoms of high blood pressure well what is driving that blood pressure why do you have that symptom what is the root cause rather than like if, if you go on most of the online forums or you know general hearsay it's that oh we'll just take an ACE inhibitor or mm-hmm. we'll take an uh, angine tensin receptor blocker an ARB blocker just to keep blood pressure down when actually like their high blood pressure could be because their estrogen is sky high they're taking too high doses of androgens so that's affecting the um, androtensin hormone regulating cycle of their kidneys so so they're retaining more fluids and so like you're sort of you have to sort of figure out what is driving that issue rather than band-aiding it just to keep you training this this segues us on quite nicely as well because um <clears throat> the, the way that i found you is somebody sent sent me a lecture that you did at a um, bodybuilding convention um about drug design and functional medicine and Honestly, I found the the content fascinating, but I think the sound guys on the day that clearly put the microphone too close to the thing and it was, there was feedback and I was like, man, I want to be able to to hear this stuff in more detail. Um, And unfortunately that video, that was funny. The camera that we used to record, I forgot to turn the microphone on. Oh (laughs) man. We've been there. (laughs) 
No, afterwards I was watching it back. I was like, what's happened to the sound? And then I looked and I thought, oh my God. It's been picking up from someone's but iPhone was, at the back. I, I, was, I was lucky that actually my father was in the audience and he recorded on his phone. So that's why they're sort of like, I had to sync the audio from the phone to the actual oh. camera. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> an editor's nightmare. So it's the worst feeling in the world, so, I think. I but that's why people were giving out to me saying like, oh, we tried to watch it, but the audio is awful. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I salvaged what I could. Yeah. But still, like, like if you watch the video, all the slides from the talk are down on the bottom as a picture in picture. So like, even for reading the slides, you don't even have to watch the video. The content is still there. Yeah, exactly. So I was, I was relying on reading the slides, but at least... At least for anyone that's looking for you now, they'll uh, they'll have this on on YouTube or iTunes with with better audio. But what um, you should do, Dean, is have a, a link at the bottom of the video that just says "Want the audio? Click here, fifty quid." Uh, yeah, someone actually said no to problem. me what I should do is I should break it down into mini videos and then do a voice over oh to the top. <laughs> and then I was like, Ugh. at that point, just re-record it. Effort. Yeah, I was like, maybe I'll just record it as a lecture series. But yeah. that that talk. I was the last person to speak on that day and the amount of people that come up to me afterwards. And I mean, I was talking with some very big names that day and a lot of people, the, the general feedback was, oh my God, like you just opened my eyes to so many different avenues and different ways of thinking at, or looking at different problems. Mm. And I mean, my background, like I said, is in drug design and pharmacology in pharmaceutical chemistry and developing drugs for diseases. But the whole issue I had when I gave that talk was that conventional medicine looks at what drug matches the symptom, whereas functional medicine will actually look them well. What What is the root cause to your problem? So the, this is what I found so fascinating, that obviously with with conventional medicine, it's it's treating things once they've got to the point where the blood pressure is imminently causing damage or it, it's imminent you know to, it, it's kind of a last resort thing and i think a lot of people um slate on conventional medicine as if it's kind of as if it's bullshit well not bullshit but as if they they don't trust it and they're sort you know you've, i'm sure you've heard all the oh, big pharma actually know the cure for cancer but they're just hiding it so that they can <laughs> all this kind of, all these kind of claims but what i liked about your talk is that you're, you're very much um sympathetic to the the the, the, the varying requirements of this and saying that for the audience of people who are looking to optimise their performance and their health, it makes more sense to look further back along the chain of causality for the high blood pressure, say, say is there some kind of fundamental reason for this that's not the standard pathophysiology and rather than giving an ACE inhibitor, as you said, is there something that we can do that will... That, that will that will kind of stop that chain earlier in its tracks and will that impact performance and will that impact um, longevity as well? Yeah, and I mean, the other thing then that comes from it is, unfortunately, a lot of the population are, are lazy. And that's just to put it lightly, in that it's it's not sexy to have to adopt lifestyle or diet changes to prevent a problem when you know that you could take a simple pill to get rid of a symptom. Mm-hmm. So, like, the same thing, you could take it from the angle of a bodybuilder who is manifesting high blood pressure. Their blood pressure could be being triggered by insulin resistance from using excessive growth hormone. Their high blood pressure could be driven by high estrogen because they're using high levels of androgens. So, like, in the simple case scenario of that 
particular person, it would be literally reducing their dosage, removing the high level of the compound that is triggering the problem. So in the, sorry, in the, in the high blood pressure example, just so that, just to sort of set the person's mind at rest, who's listening to this and thinking, well, I go to the gym four times a week. Am I going to get high blood pressure? That's specifically in non-natural lifting populations. Yeah, so, right. so we're looking at people who are enhanced using either yeah. androgenic <clears throat> anabolic steroids or who, who are using peptide compounds such as growth hormone. Okay, okay. So that that's, of, that's, just, that's just to say the general population who goes to the gym who may be non-enhanced or natural, that's where more so the diet, lifestyle and environment factors would apply even greater mm-hmm. because of it's a lot more complex at least with it say for an enhanced bodybuilder who develops high blood pressure there's low-hanging fruit there of okay we know compounds are in the system that could be triggering these problems but let's either reduce them or get rid of them completely so and then once once they're removed then if high blood pressure is still present then you're sort of going after you know the, the functional side of diet lifestyle environment okay that makes sense. So in terms of the low-hanging fruit then, um, could you talk a bit about the kind of tensions between... So another common criticism I see is someone goes to the doctor for depression and the doctor gives them an SSRI and they say, oh, that's that's terrible, it's not addressing the root cause of the problem, etc. Now, I know that there's some contention over the, the, the data behind SSRIs and I'm very keen to chat about that as well, but I suppose there's there's a there's the sense that Yes, the the doctor may well know that <clears throat> the patient might actually have several aspects of their lifestyle and their circumstance that need addressing to fundamentally stop that that depression. But in a in a seven minute window with a patient who isn't motivated and, as you said, just really wants a pill to to solve the, the problem and and go yeah. away, the the doctor, if they were to be glib and say, "Oh, well, actually, you need to start meditating and walking for." an hour a day and go to the gym and sort your marital issues out and and they, and they tell them that in seven minutes and the patient's like all right and then does none of it <laughs> they've not done their job as a, as a doctor to at least mitigate the risk for that patient within that time window but it's difficult because there's this kind of bilateral tension where even the prescriber of the ssri may well think you know what i'm not super convinced of the evidence here but this is all i can do in seven minutes compared to the populations yeah. that we'd be speaking to and who are listening to this podcast who are motivated to actually go back to, along that causal chain that you said and and to start addressing things from a, um, you know, they have the discipline or the, the, the willingness to start addressing things from um, an endogenous perspective. Yeah, I mean, depression, what triggered my um, diving into the rabbit hole of depression, I guess, is because it runs familiarly. So... Uh, on my mother's side, there is manic depression. So even myself, sometimes I can manifest symptoms of low mood and depressive symptoms, but it never really became full-blown in myself. So in the last couple of years, I started thinking, obviously, as I delve more into functional medicine, surely there is a reason behind why this is manifesting why depression is happening whether it's genetically or environmentally or diet induced etc so the other thing with my own mother was that the clinical psychologist kept increasing 
her medication kept giving her higher dosages of medication. It would get to a point where what was working but not being as effective, so they'd increase the dosage. So I decided to start delving more so into the fundamental level of looking at my own genetics. And this is where the rabbit hole really opened up. <laughs> so when when I done my 23andMe genetic analysis, and this was 2016, when I was going through all my SNPs, so the single nucleotide polymorphisms, so these are basically parts of genes where a specific sequence has been slightly altered. So the function of the end enzyme that corresponds to that gene may be slightly different to the normal population. So when we look at, for example, mood, we're particularly interested in dopamine, serotonin, and then norepinephrine and epinephrine to a lesser extent. So serotonin gets cleared from the body by an enzyme known as monoamine oxidase A. And it turned out when I delve into my genetics that I actually have a plus-plus variant of MAOA, which means that my MAOA enzyme works 75 times faster than a normal person. So if you can think about the function of MAOA, it's to clear serotonin out of your brain. So if mine's working 75 times faster, it's clearing all that serotonin out. So unless I'm keeping up with the demand for serotonin production, I'm going to end up with low serotonin and effectively low mood. Now, this is where it gets interesting. When you understand that those genetics and why I didn't manifest any um, symptoms of low mood or low serotonin, if you look at my diet as a bodybuilder, ever since I've been 15, 16, my diet has been extremely high in protein. Mm -hmm. And I've been feeding my body enough tryptophan to feed into serotonin production. So I never never manifest those symptoms of low mood because I'm giving my body the precursor to make serotonin all the time. Have you ever tested the hypothesis by, or, or even when you're on holiday or whatever, when you actually haven't got as much access to dietary tryptophan and notice any change in your mood? Yeah, a little bit. And the same with sleep, obviously. But... Again, that, that was more so where using 5-HTP in the concept of when I developed the sleep stack came from was to give myself more serotonin to fall asleep and feed into the next day's mood, basically. The other then, so what I came to realize there, obviously, was that, okay, I have MAOA++. So obviously then without even testing my mother, it's it must be either maternal or paternal where I got those genetics from. So then you start to get a picture of, okay, so my mother is MAOA++, obviously, because of the manic depressive symptoms. Then when you delve further down the line into the um, cytochrome P450 enzymes, so those enzymes are hepatic um, expressed enzymes, which metabolized drugs and when you look then into the polymorphisms I have in CYP450s you, you start to see oh there's one there in I think it's 3A1C I think it is and what that controls is the um, metabolism of SSRIs 
So now you start to see, okay, so my mother here has MAOA++ and she also has possibly polymorphisms in CYP450 uh, 3A1. So now it makes sense why her dosage of prescribed medication keeps going up and up because of she's a super metabolizer of the compound. That's unlucky to also be a super metabolizer <laughs> with SSRIs as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so like, then you start to build a picture there that, okay, now I know sort of an underlying root cause of why I may have low mood, and I also know now why the doctor keeps prescribing higher medication. But the issue here then when you go back to funk, uh, conventional medicine is that if you were to quiz any sort of doctor on that simple biochemistry, they're clueless, unfortunately, like to put it simply. So, yeah, it's, again, it's a kind of difficulty with misaligned incentives where if you were to go to your psychiatrist and say, I would like an MAOI inhibitor, they would yeah. probably say, the problem is I can't prescribe this because it's a third line or fourth line treatment and it's not in the guidelines anymore. And so as a result, I can't bear the... Um, the litigation risk of of prescribing this, I suppose. So then you're in the position where either you go to America where they'll just give you whatever you pay them for. Um, or so, so what does that mean, that they that wouldn't be the first option? Yeah, so it would be, like, because it's been... Because there are other side effects and risks with, with taking them, right. the doctor then can't legally justify Got it. giving that drug because it's... So default to SSRIs well, is the... But, mm. then, but then again, if someone had MAOA... Why would you not go back then to the to the fundamental aspect of how serotonin's produced and quiz them on diet, quiz them on lifestyle? How much protein are they eating per day? Are they adequately hitting what their body requires for tryptophan to produce serotonin? Rather than looking at blocking MAOA to keep what serotonin is there, actually ensure that they are constantly feeding into ser- serotonin synthesis, so whether it's either high-protein diet or helping with 5-HTP and conversion through to serotonin. So in, in this situation, what I think you're, you're describing is basically there's this almost genetic canvas where someone has a makeup that means they're more likely to experience low moods or depressive symptoms. Is the takeaway then eat more protein in that instance? Or like, is there anything you can do about that? Or is it just, that's the way it's written? There's very little you can do I, I, guess, I guess then it can get a little more technical in that just because you have sufficient levels of neurotransmitters, we, we delved into neuropharmacology during my degree. And having sufficient levels of neurotransmitters is one part of the puzzle. The second part is actually then having sensitivity at the synapse to actually take on board those neurotransmitters. So whilst you may have adequate levels of neurotransmitters, you may have deficiencies then at the synapse to actually take on board the neurotransmitter to elicit its effect. And that's where it gets a little more technical then of delving into what is happening then on a molecular level. But yeah, of course, making sure that we hit um, tryptophan and tyrosine targets. So tryptophan feeds into serotonin, tyrosine feeds into dopamine so these are ways that you can like with the background of your genetic predispositions you can then say i'm going to try and stack the odds back in my favor with the interventions that i can control so it's not like it's a cure necessarily but it's like a how it's it's how can you sort of protect against each of those weaknesses or or factors 
Yeah, and understanding fundamentally what your body is requiring to keep up with its demand. Um, then you have the other side that I, I delved into in that talk at Irish Muscle Power, and that was about depression as a symptom rather than a root cause. So you're best off, if someone has depressive symptoms, there must be something that is triggering that depression. And like we, we went on before when we were discussing about the blood pressure, it's about going back like I did to actually seeing where that root cause is stemming from. And what, what they are starting to see is that a lot of people may potentially be chronically inflamed. And as a result, that inflammation is triggering depressive symptoms within the brain. To, as a way of, you can't, unlike a physical injury where you get a, a cut and white blood cells flood to the area and trigger inflammation and power of healing, if you have an underlying inflammatory condition, say within your liver or within your gut, you have no real way of assessing what's happening there. So what they're starting to see is potentially underlying inflammation in the body is triggering depression as a way of your to alert your brain to something isn't right within my body. Hmm. So and there's there's a couple of there's a couple of nice books if people want to delve into it. There's um, Dr. Kelly Brogan's book. Uh, uh, a mind of your own and there's another one called an inflamed mind that's written i forget his name now he's a clinical psychologist in the uk and they both come at it from the angle of inflammation in the brain and viewing depression as a symptom to a root cause i've been <clears throat> following a little bit from a guy called datis karazian who's a um neurologist in america harvard neurologist. Yeah. yeah and he he's um i mean that that's that's yeah also one part of his kind of hypotheses that um, there are other systemic inflammatory issues that are kind of on a low level and wouldn't be picked up because they're not above the clinical reference range necessarily, but they will be kind of an ongoing thing and, and that there are maybe things that we can do to either improve parasympathetic tone or reduce these inflammatory uh, in inflammatory contributors that will then help to sort of dampen those symptoms a little bit. So that's yeah. inflammation's a term that's thrown around a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like in the especially in the online fitness world, which is what most people listening will be familiar with, people say, "Oh, I've got like, I've got gut inflammation, or I, I, I'm very inflamed today," and things like that. Can you, either of you, give a very concise, like what what is that? As far as I don't, I've got no idea what that is. What could be causing inflammation, or what is inflammation in that in that context? I guess that, that is a, a tricky one to answer quite simply, but if someone was concerned that they had chronic levels of inflammation, we can measure this through blood markers. Right. Okay. So we have HSCRP, which is high sensitivity, sensitivity um, C-reactive protein. So that's produced in the liver in response to high levels of cytokines. So cytokines are like messenger molecules that are sent out by our white blood cells to respond to either a pathogen or an inflammatory event. Um, so when our body produces, one of the main ones is IL-6, or people might know about uh, TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha. When they reach the liver, they get processed and they trigger C-reactive protein. 
And C-reactive protein is part of the complement system. So again, that's one of our immune responses for combating um, innate infection. So if someone had chronic levels of inflammation, you'd be able to detect the true HSCRP. So, and, and to answer the question of what, what actually, what is it, what's the initial mm-hmm. thing, is that if there is some kind of low-level insult to the immune system, okay, and then it starts to go on a... Um, on like a, a yellow alert, right. so not not enough, not like red alert enough to actually mount an immune response, but enough to just be slightly activated and start to release things that will either cause a um, seeping of fluid out of the blood vessels and um, low levels of of effect on the way that the, the like the way that the gut functions, the way that um, the nervous system operates. So it might slightly elevate your cortisol to bring up your blood glucose and your catecholamines, all of these things start to like your, um, it bec- you become slightly more tinted in, in favor of say five flight. Um, even if it's okay. not enough to, to affect something at a conscious level, it might affect some of the internal workings of the organs and then just cause things not to function quite as well. And so, I think for the context of bodybuilding or whatever, we don't want that to be the case because it's, it's sure. kind of quite counter to, what we're trying Protein to do. synthesis, for example, yeah. So could someone who feels otherwise well be sat there? So someone sits, is sitting there with low mood, for example, or depressive symptoms, could they have no symptoms of infl- chronic inflammation otherwise? But would that be the case? Yeah, and right. I'll tell you where one hidden point of it is, and I guarantee you most people have this. <laughs> okay. Still Your Gums. Gums. Inflamed gums. How many people go and get their gums deep cleaned once a year by their dentist? Or been to their dentist in the last two years? Or floss or use interdental uh, toothbrushes to brush their gums? Flossing is, is that one habit that I think all of humanity are like, oh yeah, I really should floss. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow and, and just never get but around you know to why? it. Like, no one's, there's no one offering a sufficient con- concise explanation as to why. Here we go. Here it is. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean like, if there's any one thing that you can do to preserve keeping low levels of inflammation in your body is taking care of your teeth and your gums. That because, is insane. again, when, when you look at it, then high levels of inflammation will not only feed into depression, they may feed into um, arterial oxidation of LDL. So now you have your immune system on alert looking for LDL. So you have white blood cells, the macrophages, the little Pac-Men, going around looking for LDL to eat and they generate them foam cells which are um, like a sticky sort of molecule now that can actually adhere to the inside your endothelium to generate a plaque so if there's anything that you can do to keep inflammation low in your body the first step is take care of your teeth that's an easy thing that anyone can do that's, so that's, that's a great takeaway as yeah, well. I, can't, I can't believe it came yeah. it's come down to that but okay. yeah. so, so eat mean, more protein I mean, and brush your teeth yeah like I mean invest, invest in a good quality electric toothbrush floss daily uh, once a week use interdental um, toothbrushes to actually brush within your gums because obviously the little sticks with the handle yeah interdental yeah. sticks yeah. and you'll actually be able to clean your gum basically because of the bristles because it's literally a piece of floss that has the bristles um, and then uh, use a mouthwash obviously then 
you could come at it from the side of that, oh, you're going to be exposed to fluoride if you're using fluoride containing toothpaste. But then it's quite simple. Don't use fluoride containing toothpaste. What's, what's your concern with, with fluoride? I suppose if you look deeply into it, you're then competing with iodine in the body, mm-hmm. which then feeds off into the, the thyroid. Or you may end up with, again, this is all conspiracy theories and, you know, with the papers in terms of calcifying your pineal gland. Yeah, so the, this, this was the one that I've um, seen, some, seen some stuff on. Um, about calcifying the pineal gland and the the problem is very much so I I did a feature about sleeping on the floor recently because there was some hypotheses that tribesmen and um, indigenous populations sleep on hard surfaces and have lower levels of musculoskeletal illness so I thought okay I'll I'll give it a try Um, but anyone I could find that was an advocate of it were just really weird and I didn't trust them. And the same with the pineal gland thing as well, that I think they discredit themselves by being so systemically weird that that it kind of... But, um, it's yeah, it's tough, because whenever I've asked a dentist about whether they're concerned about that, it's not something they've heard of, and obviously they're just saying, well, no, you absolutely should use a fluoridated toothpaste because of the dental health. So I'd love to see if there's some data that comes out in the future that um, that can can talk about this because if it is the case and we are calcifying our pineal gland from toothpaste then that's uh, for, for, for those of us who meditate or are interested in in that um, that side of, of, of our personal growth it's a huge hindrance what does your pineal gland do it's the the basically like the the spiritual center of the brain wow it, it, okay. according to what they um, according to the conspiracy theorists, but it also produces melatonin. So right. there's the idea that as you grow older, your sleep quality declines. Because of calcification. Possibly. So dentists Possibly, say yeah. use it, but there's a theory to suggest that we maybe shouldn't. The dentists so, are yeah, and I mean, trying to control I mean, it, so. it, there, is a, there is a published study regarding fluoride's effect from drinking water on sex hormone binding globulin. Increasing sex hormone binding oh, globulin. So again, <laughs> again, the, the picture for why fluorine is in our water and why we're prescribed to use it isn't very convincing. But again, like I said, you're then delving into conspiracy theories. Oh, well, it's, the, it's just the government's trying to control control the population, isn't it? So obviously, it's, uh, it, so it's, t- up, it's up to people to develop their own conspiracy theories yeah. and beliefs. Just but, to uh, for the listeners as well, sex hormone binding globulin is what basically sweeps up your testosterone and your blood and so it makes it it inactivates it and in my yeah, recent great. estrogen test my sex hormone binding globulin was quite high because all the toothpaste all the toothpaste must be stop brushing your teeth <laughs> I mean even even drinking water like some uh, again it, trying to remove fluorine from tap water is very very difficult without doing reverse osmosis where you extract the ions out of water most generic, you know, water filters that you buy, Brita filters or whatever brand, they, they will just remove, because it's activated charcoal-based filters, they don't actually remove fluorine from it because of how heavy the fluorine molecule is. So, again, like, that's where possibly moving to bottled water could be better, but then you're getting into the argument of, oh, bottled water and plastic, and then... Where'd you go from there? So it's it's a horrible rabbit hole. 
It's absolutely <clears> there. And, and when you, even if even if you try and find BPA free bottles, we know that BPC and the other <laughs> alternatives to BPA are just as estrogenic, if not more. That so it's. Do you yeah, think there's someone um, somewhere in the centre of all this that knows what's going on and is to blame for all these for all these things? Let's go find him, beat him up. Because <laughs> <laughs> it seems like uh, just this game that cannot be won. It's yeah, it's terrible. It is terrible. When you, when you start to think of it that way, it really is terrible. <laughs> in that, you, you, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what choice you make at the end of it. You, you just fucked. There, there's, there's some sort of outlier that's going to fuck you either way. Basically. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so just try and oh, be happy and get on with it. I, I mean, just accept your fate. So I've, I've been doing an estrogen experiment recently where having spoken to Anthony J, <clears throat> I um, eliminated a lot of estrogens from my environment and from my um, cosmetics and that kind of thing. And finding alternatives that are completely estrogen free is the closest thing to impossible that I've ever done. <laughs> it's like you find something that's paraben free and instead it's laden with phthalates. Find something that's phthalate free. It's got loads of parabens and sodium benzoate and sodium lauryl sulfate and you're like okay fine I'll go for the plant based alternative and the only plant based ones are <laughs> flax or lavender and you're like this is a joke this is, it's as if they're all playing some that's big... why I think there's a man in the centre of it all that knows what's going on I, that's yeah. rigged the game so it cannot be one it's, it's, it's like, just a big maze with it, no exit it'll be Unilever like I, I bet they they own all of the you know how like they give you the false sense of choice by how they own like Imper- by owning all the brands they have Imperial Leather and Johnson and & Johnson and all this stuff and then they say oh well it's a different product so but actually they own all of like the ethical superstore <laughs> This is yeah. soaps. We're getting well. into Yusuf's, what Yusuf does when he's on his own in a dark room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, then then it comes down to like the the underlying thing of well, you shouldn't smell. If everything is fine, sweat is odorless. So when you're washing yourself using plain water, should really be sufficient. So when you go back to the underlying thing of of how how clean your body is. Basically. Oh, I see. Okay, so th- this is the internally not not like shower gel is causing us to smell because uh, you've heard the, the the no poo movement. People that don't use shampoo because they say when you use shampoo, it rinses off the oils, which causes you to then have oil, oilier hair the next day, and then you have to keep using it more and more. Right. <clears throat> but anyway, but it's all part of the grand conspiracy, isn't it? <laughs> Before we go down the uh, the conspiracy rabbit hole, Dean, um, what uh, what are the implications that you've drawn from the kind of extensive stuff that you've done on training for hypertrophy or eating for hypertrophy for natural lifters? Yeah. So, are there any differences in the implications? I suppose for okay. that for drug free versus drug assisted lifters. I mean, I guess when it comes to an, an enhanced bodybuilder. They have the advantages in that certain compounds will increase nitrogen retention. So ultimately for protein synthesis to actually accrue muscle tissue, we must finish that day with a positive nitrogen balance, to put it simply. So basically, if if we get down to the nitty-gritty, to put on, say, a pound of muscle tissue at the end of a month, so that's that's 440 grams of muscle tissue. If you divide that by 30, it'll give you something like, I think it's eight grams of protein retention per day in order to accrue a pound of muscle tissue. And that positive nitrogen retention then is upregulated in 
the context of, you know, increased mTOR activation using anabolic steroids. A natural athlete won't have that advantage per se because of obviously they're relying on free testosterone within their body and the natural hormone cascades having optimal levels of um, free T3 for their thyroid hormone to keep their metabolism optimized. So I guess a enhanced bodybuilder may get away with being able to ingest more protein that would be deemed necessary to take advantage of that increased nitrogen retention. Whereas a natural athlete may have to be a little more intelligent in terms of their uh, obeying their caloric balance. So again, obviously we know that there's a higher thermic effect of food with protein and it's very difficult to overfeed on protein. But it just doesn't make sense then for a natural athlete mm-hmm. to be shoveling in tons of protein when they could actually, you know, designate some of that caloric intake to carbohydrates and fats, which may then add, add so, towards their overall calorie intake then. So I suppose like a, a, with with uh, drug-enhanced lifters, that, a lot of, that you can afford to take the piss a lot more with a lot of the variables. So you can you take the piss with protein, you take the piss with training volume and frequency. Um, and I suppose in, in Mark Key's words, like you can afford to make a lot more training errors and still make progress because of this cascade that's just been... Um, yeah, and I mean, you. like, you'll have, you'll have increased recovery, um, better insulin sensitivity, possibly um, better control of thyroid hormone metabolism. So, it, it, again, you, you can't... That's where you see people who choose to go the route of enhancement, making such great gains initially, even though everything may not be optimised. Because you're going from this sort of field to up here. Whereas, again, if you get to here, well, what's stopping you coming up here with keeping everything properly optimised? And that's where you see the, the dramatic real gains. But, again, natural athletes, the whole issue behind um, enhanced athletes also is young. the young generation just hopping on it without actually gaining a fundamental understanding of training and diet and then obviously optimizing their recovery it's it's almost seen as oh if i take steroids i'm going to get massive very quickly whereas the the <clears throat> basis there should be that you know you should be able to understand methods training intensities proper rest and recovery and then obviously being able to keep full control of your diet there, there are people we've seen who use steroids as a way to offset the things that are lacking in their lifestyle. So they're, they're out late most nights, they're taking a lot of cocaine, they're doing a lot of stuff that is normally would put them into bad shape. And so the steroids almost just mitigate that and just bring them back to normal again, which I think is a very sledgehammer way to <laughs> just look into normal shape. Yeah. We, we've seen people who are taking a lot of drugs who outwardly don't even look like they train which I just find... Heartbreaking. Well, it's also, <laughs> like, bizarre how you've managed to achieve that. Oh, like, yeah. It's a, it's a hell, of a, hell of a thing, isn't it? I remember it? you saying, if I was taking steroids, I would be in hospital <laughs> with how... Just the training volume. Yeah, yeah. that you just absolutely nailed well, if you've got that, If you've got that ability to train more, but you're not training at all, what a waste of time. But anyway. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it comes back to like I said, having like that discipline of learning training intensity. Mm. So, like, if if you're natural and you know that you've optimized your training, and say, for example, uh, like you get absolutely fucked doing a, a widowmaker on squats, oh. but say you you aim for you know that that twenty rep set, but it takes you like say you get to rep twelve or thirteen, and you're having to grind out the last seven. When you're enhanced that Widowmaker may seem a lot more effortless and then you can follow up with more volume following that Widowmaker because of the recovery capacity sounds, is there. Sounds great, doesn't it? It, it, it sounds scary, to be honest, because like <laughs> I suppose the stress is the same on joints, ligaments, tendons, but something's shifted that means that you're able to suddenly handle that weight when no other structures are ready for it. Yeah, and then you get into the whole issue of um, certain anabolic steroids increasing, um, you know, calcium and sodium absorption. So then you have protected joints that can handle heavier loads, yet the tendon and ligaments don't actually strengthen when using these compounds. And that's where we start to see devastating injuries mm. yeah. from overconfidence. Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss or muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, The Propin Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propinfitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. So for, a, for someone who's not enhanced, is, is there anything that, that you've come across or, or any, any changes from what is maybe the norm that someone should or shouldn't be doing? Or does it just come back to, as you say, like mo- monitoring your protein intake in line with your calorie intake? and not overdoing training stress and calories? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's not really any hidden secret, I guess, to <laughs> to a natural athlete other than, other than being just meticulous and tracking everything and, and understanding what variable then is lacking. There, there's no, like, you know, hidden way to make games. It, how you are training and then what you're doing following that training that improvement because I think I posted recently a picture between the very first time I ever competed in bodybuilding in 2011 to like two weeks ago and when you work out all the hours between the two I think it was like 68,000 hours in seven and a half years but like if you worked out that say I trained an hour every day five days a week for the last seven and a half years, it only comes out at 2,000 hours. Like, that's 2,000 hours physically training in the gym and then, you know, 
65,000 hours living my life. It, it, training is training is one piece of the puzzle that you need to nail in terms of intensity and you know inducing change to cause that. Dean, we're uh, we're, we're losing you a little bit on the connection. So just to because um, it's it's as if the the, the gods of gains are, 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 are like the number one secret to is He's revealing uh, it now. <laughs> so so you you were saying that um, it's to nail recovery and the time outside of the gym so that. You can recover from the the time that you that you're training as a natural athlete. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, being able to take it to that level that's going to cause adaptation rather than you know going into the gym and swinging. For example, biceps. How many people do you see train biceps effectively who who could be potentially natural? Uh, like uh, you Not just really. see, um, I know people swinging dumbbells like this up where it could be mainly. Uh, glomerulonephral joint of their shoulder that's taken most of the load. When in fact, like if they actually, you know, adducted their shoulder, kept their elbow in line with their body, and actually worked off the the mechanics of their bicep and actually lifting a correct load, you'd see someone go from swinging a, a five kilo dumbbell like this to probably not being able to do twelve reps with a five kilo dumbbell. It's funny because um, <clears throat> a lot of the problems, like just get pulled back to something that's actually really it's, it's like really simple just train your biceps properly <laughs> like it's um and we we see this a lot with we call it a, the syndrome of thinking you're more advanced than you are and we have a lot of people that come to us worrying about stuff that's really minutiae when they just haven't got any they're not making it to the gym more than once twice a week or that their calories are all over the place and you're thinking well okay let's get them sorted then we'll start worrying about well, there's yeah. a, 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 an error I constantly see is someone someone's in the gym and it's upper body day, so they just sporadically pick three or four exercises and do a few sets with them, and then just a random assault. They maybe don't do those exercises again for eight weeks when they randomly fancy it, and like, am I making progress? Well, I don't know. Do I look any different in the mirror? Maybe. Yeah. You know, it's just chaotic. Yeah. So, and I mean, that's where the beauty of a logbook that yeah. I encourage anyone to have, and basically, then you you have a written record of what you need to effectively beat session to session. Yeah. So yeah. whether that's, you know, get get one extra rep or increase one and a half and then you get into this, uh, you know, progressive overload that you are constantly progressing your body to adapt to a better stimulus. Yeah. And that's, and you know, it's what turns like the ninth rep of your third set into something really significant rather than something really random. And it actually, you know, yeah. it becomes competitive and there's a structure, but it's again, probably much simpler than what most people are trying to do. You're just focusing on yeah. correct technique and just have a simple plan that's progressive and that you follow it. Okay. So it's, it's good to know that there's yeah. no hidden secrets that, that we weren't aware of. So. <laughs> so, not, not that I've been, I've been changed, you're aware so. of. Okay. So moving on to, I suppose, a bit more of your specialty, I suppose, in, in the world of supplements. So again, just keeping it in the in the non-enhanced realm. What are some of the like the do's and don'ts that you would you would advocate with supplements? Like, are there anything any supplements out there that are popular that you think are maybe a bad idea? Um, one to touch on is specifically beta alanine. So <laughs> Yusuf has a a theory that I mean, I'll, I'll let you speak more about <laughs> it, but beta alanine's in most pre-workouts for example so as citrulline malate and a lot of bcas 
Um, but I know there's a, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, Yusuf will send me a text saying like, Johnny, stop taking BCAs immediately. <laughs> it's not, not quite that serious, but you know, there's a, there's an overwhelming tide of these are the things that we should be taking. This is what's in pre-workout. But then when you dig a little deeper, there's sometimes some, some contradictory evidence. So is there any, anything that you're looking at currently or opinions you have that maybe differ from, from the market norms at the moment? Um, I guess the simplest thing that someone possibly could incorporate pre-workout or intra-workout is a complete protein source. So whether that's from the pre-workout meal or whether that is supplementing with something like whey protein hydrolysate or a essential amino acid supplement. Right. That's the, like the, the first thing so that you're augmenting muscle protein synthesis going into the workout and then obviously supporting that during the two or whatever, two or three hours pre and post training. Um, then you're sort of getting more into the technical aspect of, okay, do I need to support um, ENOS, the enzyme which creates nitric oxide in the body? So obviously, the more nitric oxide, the greater vasodilation, in theory, the greater blood flow and nutrient delivery you are going to get to that muscle tissue while it's training. So then you're getting into the nitty-gritty of, okay, beta-alanine will feed into carnosine synthesis along with citrulline helping with ENOS to create nitric oxide. Are they fundamental and required? No. Will they make a difference? Potentially. Like if we know that taking beta-alanine will later feed into carnosine and then feed into the muscular endurance, then you're sort of getting to the nitty-gritty of, if I didn't take it and I get to that final rep, if I did take it, would the muscular endurance be there to, you know, get past that lactate threshold? So I don't think any of these things are, are necessary in terms of, you know, what supplements I need to take. It's again going back to the basics of, am I supporting my body to recover before the workout and after the workout through my nutrition first? On a high level as well, do you think there are any kind of misaligned incentives with supplements that are that there when there's research that's come out on so i remember there was that one on uh, i think it was hmb that just made it out to be this absolutely incredible it, people gained like 12 pounds of muscle in 12 weeks or something and then later on it was discredited and the author was found to not have declared his interest and all of that stuff do you are there any kind of systemic issues within the research that you think uh, we haven't spotted or do you think um there are certain supplements that have been overblown as a result of um data that's just not been questioned um i suppose that is one thing that you always need to in any sort of form of research whether it is even like pharmaceuticals who is doing the research and who is funding it who where where are the outside special interests like if if this company developed this super amazing anabolic compound yet the people who studied it and published the paper are actually being paid you know a couple of hundred thousand to study their compound to skew the results to manipulate the statistics to then falsify what actually happens because then you end up with looking at results that may be um significant but then you take into consideration the sample size study it becomes clinically insignificant Yet you could, you know, make this claim on your product that this product, you know, is five times more anabolic than 
Yeah, or five five hundred. What what was the claim? What supplement was it that they put five thousand <laughs> percent? I think it might have been one of the creatine, one of the new forms of creatine. Oh, I think okay. in one of the papers they made some outrageous claim that was like five thousand percent more absorption or something. And I was like, how could you even physically achieve that, or even you know scientifically quantify that that number? It it's interesting because even the most what appears to be statistically sophisticated methods can be p hacked i suppose where where p is the, the 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 probability that the results have come out by chance and there was one i saw recently someone took apart this old study that people had just been relying on as one of these great scientific mysteries which was someone made uh, they they did something to make water and stuff dissolved in it crystallize in certain shapes and then took micro- took photos of it microscopically and and in one group they he emanated positive emotion towards one crystal and said certain like good words and then the other group he said bad words and emanated negative emotion and the crystals looked in different shapes and the not positive ones were like really nice symmetrical ones and the negative were like these horrible sort of brown um mottled crystals and it, someone just took it apart and was like, what this guy has done is just a really sophisticated way to make it, to like cherry pick his results. And um, and it sent a lot of people along this track of like, maybe there are these um, vibrations that are responsive to emotion and they get picked up within physical matter. And it just, it, it just completely sends the science off on a, a track that it is fruitless. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, then, I guess you can sort of apply that the current supplement industry towards, say, the selective androgen receptor modulators. So yeah, we were just talking about this before the before the call. I'd love to uh, to hear you pick these apart. Yeah, and I mean, okay, so like I gave a lecture on these in two thousand and eight, and back then you had the typical compounds you see today, like S four androgene. Um, and basically can we just give people an intro sorry for anyone who doesn't know what the androgen modulators are yeah so to, to make it quite simple what elicits the effects of say anabolic steroids is that we have androgen receptors in the body and they basically then dictate through um gene activation, whether we get, you know, the anabolic effects of muscle building, protein synthesis, etc., or whether we develop the androgenic side effects, so they could be, you know, all DHD conversion, um, the prostate enlargement side effects. So when we take certain compounds, we can favor towards how they bind to the androgen receptor to elicit either an anabolic effect or a androgenic side effect. And how they done this quite simply back in like the 60s and 70s when they were developing the classes of compounds was they'd use the levator any muscle of a rat <laughs> and expose it to the con- and, and then expose it to the to the rat to, the rat to the compound and see what happens. So whether it grew in size <laughs> or, or whether then did, did it cause the, uh, the prostate tissue of, of the rat then to grow in size also. And they were able to get a ratio between, you know, the growth of the muscle versus the growth of the prostate. And that's where you develop then, you know, the 
androgenic to anabolic ratios we see for these compounds. Mm, okay. But obviously there will always be some level of androgenicity to these compounds versus the anabolic effects. So if we're looking at purely developing compounds that could possibly say combat sarcopenia, so you know, muscle wasting in advanced older age generations, we'd want a compound that is not going to cause androgenic side effects so that we're putting them at risk, say, of benign prostate hyperplasia. Yeah, in a population so, that already know, have big prostates, you don't want to do anything yeah, to make that worse. Yeah, yeah, or, or you know, yeah, again, so basically we want to develop a class of compounds that will be selective for the androgen receptor, but will only cause the anabolic effects. And that's where the research stems then for this class of molecules called the selective androgen receptor modulators. But the companies that went into that research, um, Merck and a couple of others, after about five years, they, Andrine S4 is probably the compound which has made it the furthest in terms of, you know, getting to almost phase three clinical trials for humans. But they started to realize that, okay, they do activate the androgen receptor and they can cause anabolic effects, but they're still causing some mild androgenic side effects. The other um, research of why they wanted to develop them was so that they'd act specifically only on the androgen receptor and not feed back to the HPTA. So the, the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis is what controls the output of LH and FSH are two fertility hormones that feeds back then onto the testes to make testosterone. So if we can keep that system functioning whilst giving this anabolic agent, then we don't have to worry about withdrawal when we take the compound away. And that, that's, a, that's the side effects. You can have a whole other discussion with anabolic steroids causing HPTA shutdown and cease of natural function. So the SARMs came along so that we have this super molecule that's going to only activate your androgen receptors and not feed back to the hypothalamus to cause HPTA shutdown. The unfortunate thing is then you get supplement companies because they are um, research compounds to speak, there is no regulation behind them because they aren't classified compounds. They have no pharmaceutical regulation in terms of being you know, a declared substance. So now you have companies that can actually get external chemical companies to manufacture this molecule because obviously the research is published on how to synthesize the molecules or you have clever chemists who can, you know, take the molecule apart and see, okay, this is how we make it quite easily. And then you get them to batch produce the compound and then it ends up falling onto the supplement market as this, you know, fool's gold of, you're going to get all these gains without HPA shutdown. Um, the research then, obviously we see effects then of rats. So a lot of them have been studied in rats, obviously to understand the anabolic and androgenic side effects. We then get people, you know, the simple calculation for a rat and a mouse, I think is you multiply the dose by six. So whatever it is in a rat milligram per kilogram, you multiply it by six and it gives you 
the equivalent human dose. You then get people thinking, that, okay, well, if that was the effective dose in rats, we now have the effective dose in humans. They start to apply the same logic like anabolic steroids and, well, more is obviously going to be better. And then we start to see then, uh, like, uh, one of the newest classes of SARM, which was developed, I think, in 2014, is that YK11. And we start to see proper HPK shutdown when that is used in high doses. So we can start to see that there is a negative feedback occurring, whether it's, whether it's being caused by increased estrogen from aromatization or whether it's actually feeding back onto the hypothalamus itself effectively. They are just uncontrolled substances that have side effects and again are ultimately a unknown venture when you decide to go down that path if you're going to go on the enhanced route thinking that these are going to preserve my natural function and i've seen plenty of blood work to suggest that these compounds are hpta suppressive and that you need to so actually you need to you need to like you need to actually be more wary when you go down this avenue of using a uncontrolled substance being produced in some pharmaceutical company so i guess quality control issues the fact that the claims don't match up in vivo um the fact that if you're taking this stuff and then you do have shutdown you've then got to go and presumably either fix it yourself approach an endocrinologist by which point you've gone so far down this niche level of things where it may not even be a standard compound and they might have no experience at all with it that you've caused yourself possibly an irreversible problem with your hpta access yeah i mean like the same concept would apply to these compounds in terms of if you if you were suppressed towards a post-cycle therapy but again just because something is in a supplement being able to be bought online or off the shelf in a supplement store does not mean that it's of the same um, regulation or control as a pharmaceutically prepared compound or it's on par then to someone making underground steroid compounds in their backyard. Because it hasn't gone through those rigorous processes that a pharmaceutical approved regulated substance would be. Um, yeah. Both in terms of the testing on people but also the so like in the follow-ups and, and all in the side effects um, logging and all of that stuff, but also just the actual quality control of the substance itself. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of the research regarding SARMs is purely anecdotal because, okay, S4 and Andrina did make it to almost phase three, so we have some human data from phase two. But uh, again, it's more so of a gamble versus the um, truly well-studied anabolic steroids that have been around the last 50 years. So is there anything that someone can do as a natural lifter to upregulate their androgen receptors or to activate them more naturally? And I realise training is probably one of the biggest stimuli for this, but um, I've seen something about carnitine and improving the androgen receptor density. Um, is that something that's reliable or is that something that's going to be significant enough to have an effect on, on human muscle growth? Potentially. Again, that, that's another fool's gold in terms of natural testosterone booster supplements. 
um, the molecular specificity I'm talking about is carnitine L-tartrate. So as far as I can remember from the research, when they gave that, they seen a direct correlation in androgen receptor upregulation. But if you increase the density of androgen receptors in the body, it does not mean that you're going to have the hormone level to actually activate those androgen receptors themselves anyway. So just because you have more receptors doesn't mean you have more anabolic effects because you need more free hormone to activate those receptors. I see. There, there was an interesting paper around a natural herb called shilajit. And there's a research paper from 2016 or 17, I think, and it increased free testosterone by 45%, I think, was the, the number in the paper. Um, in a in a double blind experiment with I think forty people. So if people want to search up on PubMed, they can read into it. But again, it's it's very hit or miss with these natural testosterone boosters. Again, as not not a fool's gold, but like a hidden promise of oh this uh, this is going to guarantee you to get gains. So again, I'm going to take this natural testosterone booster, and it's going to give me you know massive anabolic effects when my training and diet is poor. I'm just not sure they're any safer than the, the engineered compounds as well, because you've then got the, um, the, the, the variance within when it's picked in the year and what part of the plant is used and all of these kind of things and the number of other hundreds of compounds within a herb that I, w- yeah, I, I always mean, wonder. With, with Shilajit, the active compounds they found to induce the increase in free testosterone is fulvic acid. So you can look for a standardized shilajit compound with, you know, a percentage of fulvic acid. But again, anecdotally and speaking to people who have asked me and I've, you know, recommended, oh, here's a piece of research. It's up to you if you want to follow it. Mm -hmm. The results from it haven't been anything substantial. So on on the fulvic acid note, there's a there's a drug called fulvastrant, which I've been um, looking into recently. And uh, I so I asked Dr. J about this to the estrogen guy, um, what he thought about SERMs, which are selective estrogen reuptake modulators, and these kind of downregulate the um, receptors for estrogen in the body, thereby reducing the effect that estrogen would have on 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 your on your body and on your muscle tissues eventually. Um, but what he said was that if you take that, you end up with an upregulation on the other side. So actually, once you come off them, you might have caused yourself more of a problem or like either an increase in the density of receptors overall or um, an increase in the amount that you aromatize or um, or estrogen that you produce. There's a new class of drugs called SERDs, Selective Estrogen Reuptake Destroyers, which <laughs> which just destroy the estrogen receptor entirely. And it seems to have been used by some experimental bodybuilders um, but I guess one, and you know, it's been made for people who have got breast cancer. But um, the, I suppose the problem is we don't. It, it's very experimental, and if you take it, then you're just going to permanently have high blood levels of estrogen that just aren't being picked up by the receptor. Is that something that you've looked into at all? No, I hasn't. No, no, that's that's very interesting. But again. <sighs> The whole topic of estrogen with bodybuilders, it gets to, like dogged to death. Um, what most people fail to realize is that you need 
estrogen to activate the androgen receptor. So you need estrogen for muscle growth. You also need estrogen to ensure that hepatic lipase levels are kept down within your liver. And that augments then onto HDL synthesis. So all of these enhanced bodybuilders that use, you know, high doses of aromatase inhibitors to block conversion of testosterone to estrogen, to, you know, keep estrogen low in the body because we don't want estrogen because of, you know, excessive levels of estrogen will cause gynecomastia or fat gain, etc. You actually need those healthy levels of estrogen to ensure that your liver is processing um, cholesterol molecules correctly. So by playing God, we're almost, we might end up going too far the other way or uh, messing with unintended consequences of, of a cholesterol metabolism and so on. Yeah, I mean, like, when you, when you think about it, if I'll have to read into this. Now, this sounds very interesting. But then you have, you know, um, you have the estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta. And both of those then have their own, you know, downstream effects of what they cause in terms of gene transcription. So are you effectively going to end up then with more um, alpha receptors versus beta receptors? Are you destroying them all? It's It seems like this, we don't know enough. Yeah, and, and then also with the environmental ones on top, is that is that going to be blocked by these drugs or is it working through a different... Because I know they're not excreted the same, the same way. And so, yeah, it, to me, it seems like such a rabbit hole and such a complex... Um, set of things that I, I wouldn't really know where to start if I was to try and um, pharmacologically alter these these different processes. Yeah. And again, the other thing with each speak is how many people actually support the liver metabolism of, you know, beta estradiol in terms of how it gets, you know, excreted from the body through phase two conjugation. And, you know, taking care of liver processes, etc. Like, killing estrogen, again, this is, again, if you look at it from the, the functional approach and the conventional approach, conventional approach would be, you know, oh, let's, let's kill off aromatase so that we don't get conversion of estrogen, or let's block off the estrogen receptors so that we don't end up with a side effect from estrogen receptor activation. Whereas the functional side would be more so looking at, okay, why are, you, why are you manifesting high estrogen or why? what can we do to eliminate excessive estrogen from the body? What enzyme do we need to support? What process do we need to support? Mm. It's, it's um, again, I, I suppose it's taking a sledgehammer to something by throwing an aromatase inhibitor or taking this receptor disruptor straight off the bat because then you'll end up with you know bodybuilders thinking oh pre-contest time i don't want estrogen in my body for water retention so let's take this compound that's going to destroy all these receptors so there's absolutely no chance i'm going to get any estrogen side effects and then they start to in encounter possibly libido issues because they start realizing you know post competition half these receptors are destroyed and that you actually need estrogen receptor activation for healthy libido. It's a very irreversible thing as well. Like once you've destroyed all the receptors, it's like, what? What do you do? You know, it's uh... yeah. And then the other thing is like, do, does it does it destroy the receptor but still leave the gene intact so that you know when the receptors are destroyed, 
you can still get gene transcription to generate estrogen receptors. Like that's the whole side effect of when someone takes a super physiological level of androgens, they get to a point where the effective dose that they're taking is no longer effective because of you get androgen receptor downregulation. So the, the levels of androgen receptors being expressed on muscle tissue reaches a saturation point. And at that, at that point, you're sort of looking at someone to either, you know, either push the dose even higher to try and induce, uh, uh, you know, a compensatory gene transcription to make more androgen receptors to cope with this flood of higher levels, or you remove that high-level stimulation to allow the gene then to, you know, go, stop being halted to return to normal transcription. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the take-home point, from from all of these downstream effects is that once you step into the realm of bleeding edge mod- modifications of your hormonal processes and receptors and all these things it's there's not really much stepping back and the, the further the, the more experimental you go um the less reversible the process is and realistically we've got to consider what is the individual really wanting and if the if it's just to gain a bit of muscle um, that's probably much better done without this stuff. And if it's to become a, uh, a Mr. Olympia, <laughs> then that's that's the risk that you take. Yeah. When you yeah, do 100%. that. Yeah. Interesting. Dean, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Um, did you have any final thoughts or any any other way that we can find you as well? Um, if people want to follow me on Instagram, my use is D-E-A-N-S-T-M. And that's also my YouTube channel. Cool. So that's probably the best place where people can follow day-to-day content and, you know, pick my brain. The other thing is I'm the educator on Jordan Peters and Karen Ingram's website, trainbyjp.com. So I'm on their daily, Dave of Forum there, where I, again, with the bullshit meter, tear apart things or, you know, <laughs> answer questions regarding functional, functional medicine towards bodybuilding. And there's some video content there for myself also. So if people, I think it's six ninety nine per month for to join up on a subscription fee, but there's tons of videos. And like I said, there's a whole team of athletes and two other educators, um, Stephen and Peter, that also answer questions like myself in a non-biased scientific approach. Fantastic. We'll put awesome. links to that in the, the show notes as well. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure. It has been Great. lovely, really Thank you. It's been a great chat. Thank you very much. All right, see you soon. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. So we have an opportunity for you, something that we have put together that is totally free, that is a synthesis of everything that Yusuf and I have learned in fat loss, muscle gain, nutrition, training, lifestyle, habits, the works. Everything that you hear on these podcasts, condensed and more, condensed into a synthesis of seven days of learning and immersive experience to totally overhaul, enhance, and accelerate the results you're getting currently in your training and your nutrition, no matter how advanced you are or aren't. We put together a virtual learning interactive coaching experience called the Seven Day Kickstart that you can take part in whenever you're ready to. To join, simply go propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart. Enter your details and you'll be sent everything that you need. You'll be coached by the Propane Fitness coaching team over seven days for free. You'll get seven days of content sent to your email completely for free. And it gives you a look behind the scenes of what we do with clients and gives you a ton of information that previously 
was only available to paying clients inside of our world. So propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart to take part. And we hope to see you inside. See you in the next episode. Speak soon. Show, show.